Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 135 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by punk photographer Andy Rosen, a man who captured the very final shots of the jam in 1982. He created the Brighton Beach shot for the Rear of the Setting Suns album and loads of incredible images of the jam, plenty of which we have yet to see but more on that later. Now, Andy started out as a music photographer on the likes of Record Mirror, Sounds Magazine. He freelanced at NME, Melody Maker, The Face, and most record companies as well during the burgeoning punk scene in the mid-1970s. As a friend and cohort of many who went on to become the biggest names in punk, Andy had unprecedented behind-the-scenes access to musicians and artists of London's early punk scene. This is another really special chat. Let's get into it. Andy Rosen, thanks for joining me. No worries at all. I love connecting back with people in England, especially the past. It's amazing how that time when I started, you know, photography was not very big. It was not a great career move. You know what I'm saying? It was not a sexy thing like it is or was in the 60s, the 70s, or the end of the 70s. Photography was kind of weaning a bit. Was it art? You know what I mean? All this crap. And I just was a... Well, my father was an avid photographer, not creative. But back then, if you think about photography, it was very scientifically oriented or... You know, it's chemicals and, you know, mathematics. Like to use a flash, you had to work out the distance of the ceiling and the subject and all this stuff. People don't realize that. So my dad was technically brilliant. We had a dark room at home and that's how I got into it. I just wanted to be like my dad, like you do. So I kind of watched him in the dark room and then I started to learn to print first, right? Which I think is key, which is missing nowadays. So learning to print first, you understand what you get back from a camera, you understand light and how it sort of transfers from the camera to a print because there's, you know, a lot of work goes into it. So that's really how I got into it. And then when I left school, left school at 16 and basically had a schoolboy portfolio, 
you know, girlfriends, you know, class shots, whatever, walked into Record Mirror and there was a guy, Alf Martin, who was again, just one of these dying breeds of a real editor, you know what I mean, that would sit you down, look at your pictures, you know, give you advice and sort of shepherd you. You know, he knew I was young anyway. I walked in with a schoolboy portfolio. He hired me on the spot. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't (laughs) as though there was a hundred people looking for the job. Like nowadays, 20 years later, when I was in America, it was like, Jesus, every time I walked into Rolling Stone or any of these magazines, it was 10,000 people trying to get in there. Uh, but back then, I can't say there was a lot of people competing. And when he hired me, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. I had no clue. That was the beginning of um, an incredible adventure, really, that I took in my stride. Never realized how lucky I was, never realized how important the scene was. Meaning, if you think about it, at the time, it was just all natural. These were just bands I left mm. school. But as time goes on, that era has become so much more important. It sort of changed a lot of things. I, I think punk really did. Look, I don't think punk lasted very long to be honest with you and it was definitely the media got hold of it but i think that it did change a lot of things that people maybe realize a lot of people don't realize i mean it changed fashion it changed magazines if you think of um you know the face magazine we also worked on the first issues actually they really changed how magazines did things, you know, how they picked advertisements. You know, if you remember, the, you know, the first space magazine had great place commercials up until then. Commercials just placed anyway. They would hand pick. They would tell advertisers, nope, sorry, you can't use that. Go back to the drawing board. Yeah, it was a sort of different time. And for now, I was lucky because working for the press, I would get incredible access. And also because of when I started, which was the start of the punk era, most of the stuff that I did, I got these bands on their first PR photos, which is also so an incredible difference than later on, meaning when you photograph a band early on, they're very innocent. They're not sure of themselves. And as a photographer, I think that you get a more realistic image of them. Once they get going, they've got PR, they've seen a few photos, they start their best angle, you know, all these things come into play. So I was lucky that I left school when I did. And I was lucky to get in with sort of record mirror and sounds and all the music press when there was not a lot of competition. Looking back on it, just incredible moment that I never really thought about until after how lucky I was and how brilliant that era was as a photographer. Flash forward when I left England and ended up in America, I kind of lost the plot. Every band here was heavy metal. I'm in Los Angeles. Every single band looked the same. So coming out of an era where everyone looked different, it was like I came into LA and it was like, Jesus, every band I photographed was exactly the same. In fact, in the (laughs) darkroom, I could have like switched over who I was printing because they all looked the same. It was spandex trousers and long hair. (laughs) In fact, the last band I did was called Golden Lion, which followed, I think, Lion, White Lion, and then Golden Lion or something. And I just thought, fuck this, I'm out of here. And that's when I got into, uh, you know, the video game. I thought, okay, I'm going to step behind the camera now and start sort of producing and doing that. Well, let's let's dig into some of these memories because, I mean, the thing, key thing that stands out there immediately is the power of the the music press back then. Talk to other people where they talk about the music, you know, NME and Record Mirror and things like that being like the Bible. This You needed this to survive culturally every week because otherwise you were just, you know, you were a misfit and you couldn't communicate with people and stuff like that. Was that your feeling about the power of the music press back then as well? It's an interesting observation because I think back then, if you think about it, there wasn't a lot of outlets to get your music. So now if you think about it, it's so fragmented. So where do we get our news? I don't know. We get it from Facebook. We get it from Twitter. We don't actually get any news. It's all clickbait and it's all constructed for a reason. It's very divisive. You know what I'm saying? So I think back then there was only a few outlets and that also journalists 
journalists were really journalists, meaning they had a responsibility to sort of, you know, interpret things and sort of explain them. And if you're talking about news, probably more explaining difficult things to people that don't have the education sometimes or don't know or don't have the time to know what's going on. So I think back then people followed journalists had a lot more respect for it. And I think they had a lot more power for a number of reasons. One, as I said, because now it's so fragmented and before it was very focused. If you think about it, there was Enemy, Sounds, Record Mirror, Kerrang, Smash Hits and all that. But the serious newspapers, there was only really three, wasn't there? I mean, Krang was very heavy metal. And I think also the people, the standard of people back then, meaning the editor, the art directors, the photo editors, you know, I just worked with incredible people that helped me and educated me, took the time to really not, not just say nowadays, it's like, yeah, we need this done by tomorrow. You know, just email me the pictures. Most people never even meet the editor or even know how it all works, right? Yeah. I mean, back then, I'll give you an idea. I think it was Wednesday. You could probably check this. I think uh, Record Mirror and Sounds were owned by M MPAC or something or M oh, e- EMAP. 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 It was in Carnaby Street. I used to work for Bauer who took over EMAP, and apparently EMAP, they reckon, used to stand for endless meetings and parties. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I don't think I was ever invited to the parties, actually. But, <laughs> Just the endless but, meetings, the M bit. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I do remember editorial, real editorial meetings where, where they would, you know, we would discuss every week. There'd be all the writers, the photographers and everybody, and they would discuss who they were going to sort of profile or destroy, you know, (laughs) you know, but yeah, I mean, look, I think it was just things were very different and coming out of that era and then working in other decades, you know, the quality of people. And I think again, because to become a picture editor, you really had to work at it. And there wasn't a lot of jobs in that era, you know, for that. Nowadays, there's 10,000 jobs for the same people. If you think about it, I think they were much more important than music press. I don't know how important enemy is now. I mean, I don't really follow it online only. And I would imagine, not very, uh, yeah, I would imagine not very, right? I mean, the only yeah. music papers we have in the UK now, are real proper like music magazines, I would say if you're a fan of heavy metal, there'll be a magazine for you. If, if you're a fan of hip hop, there'll be a magazine for you. But the more, what would you say, ma- the more mainstream ones, there aren't many, you know, you've got Mojo, you've got Uncut, you've got, you know, a push record collector, but there aren't many. Yeah. And they're monthlies. Which is a shame because, you know, for me, I loved working editorially, right? I didn't really, I did fashion. It wasn't really my sort of bag. I think the first session I did, I even it was for Over 21. Was that a magazine? Was it Over 21, a women's <laughs> magazine or something? Okay, I don't know that. So, I, I don't know. I think it was... I think that, that sounds was like magazine. one of those ones on the top shelf. <laughs> yeah, it was. it was. It was one of these sort of, you know, young teeny sort of young woman, professional young women or something. And I don't know how I got the job, but they came around to my studio, which was in Camden Town. And I'd never done any fashion before. And the, you know, fashion editor or stylist something walked in and said, oh, do you have an ironing board? And I go, no. <laughs> what the fuck do I need an ironing board for? <laughs> of course, you know, in fashion, they have to iron all the clothes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so editorial was was really, really big for me. And when I left England, I couldn't really pick it up. Like Los Angeles had no editorial. Like zero in any capacity. Everything was out of New York and whatever. So I kind of lost the plot a little bit out here. But And presumably the love of music is at the heart of this as well. So not just the photography, but were you a big fan of the punk music scene? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the difference is when you're like a photographer, it's like the Wizard of Oz. I see behind the curtain. So, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I suppose when I was younger, I was definitely a fan. But the moment I left school at 16, 17, I was already working for Record Mirror and stuff. And I think at that point, it's very difficult to be a fan when you're 
seeing it, like the things I saw. The funny thing about being a photographer is you're like a fly on the wall, right? That no one even realizes you're there. And the shit that they talk about, and it was a bit insulting. It was like, Jesus, don't I exist here? You know, I kind of <laughs> wanted them to say something like, you know, could you please go out the room for a second? Because I felt as though I didn't really exist. But some of the stuff I heard was was incredible, really. Nothing, you know, but just about bands breaking up and, you know, just things that maybe I shouldn't have heard. And I think back then there was also, there wasn't all this kind of running to the media to expose people. You know what I mean? Like nowadays, there's this kind of hit job or can culture and stuff. So back then there was a certain amount of sort of responsibility. Like I didn't, you know, talk about things that were said in private that I knew was sort of could be controversial or could hurt, not hurt people, but, you know, make, you know, you know what I mean? I just yeah. felt there was a different ethics back then. And I think, I don't, you know, we could get into why that is. And I think social media, all this other stuff, the polarization now between groups and political leanings, you know, everything is just exaggerated to a sort of cartoon image in a way to me anyway. Let's talk the jam. This is the Paul yeah. fan podcast. Yeah. You were a fan before you first Yeah, definitely. It? Look, yeah, absolutely. I think there was three bands for me. Look, there was a lot of great bands. I'm not knocking any of them. And all of them, as I said, they were all individual. That was what was so great about that era. They all had, most of them, there was none of this Me Too stuff. People really wanted to be original. It was kind of key. Now it's the opposite of that. And I think that um, I like, there was only three main bands for me. That's the Pistols, the Clash, and the, uh, obviously the Jam. And for me, the Jam resonated the most, mainly I think because of the songwriting. I mean, obviously it, it's sort of debatable, but I felt as though Paul's songs were really well just connected down in the tube station at midnight, take away curry, all that stuff just resonates. You know, I'm sure you remember down in the tube station at night, you know, and all that stuff and a take away curry and all that. And I think he was just an incredible songwriter and also live, just incredible when I did end up and I photographed them a lot live, just the amount of guitar strings and the energy that he would gritting his teeth and, you know, uh, just incredible. So how I got involved, there was a company called Fifth Column that you should also probably chase down as well. I could put you in touch. So they were the punk silkscreen t-shirt company of that era, right? If you check the logs, they did everybody. And being a photographer, they were sort of mates of mine who kind of started the company. So being a photographer and silkscreen printing and that type of stuff relies on a lot of photography, not only the elements that they were designing, but also the whole process. So I was like brought in as the sort of photographer technician, which was great. And then I not only had access with the music press, but I had access through this merchant, the first of the merchandising companies. This is way before the big boys got involved. And back in that era, bands wanted, Paul wanted to work. You know, there was that punk aesthetic. He didn't want to work with the big guys. It was like embarrassing. We're selling out. So they had literally every single band, one of which was the jam very early on. And they were in Kilburn High Road above a laundrette which is poignant because you need like clothes dryers to sort of dry the clothes, you know, the, the things. So obviously we thought it'd be better, or they did, they thought it'd be better to have an office above the dry cleaner, uh, not the dry cleaners, the, um, you know, the coin washing machine. Yeah, a laundrette. And basically, so we would print the t-shirts and then go down at night when there was no one around and go in there and dry them. Of course, didn't pan out too good because the next day, or we got huge complaints, had to move in the end uh, for a number of reasons because everyone's clothes were covered in ink from the jam and the clash and various other bands but it was an amazing moment because what we would used to do is being they were all hand printed there was no machines back then right now there's carousels and it's all automated right and back then it was all hand done right and it was full coverage so you couldn't print that many 
to be honest with you. So a jam order would would sort of come in for, I don't know, 5,000 T-shirts, something, and that would take quite a few days. And then we would have to ship them every day, red star them. It was like a whole process, dry them in the laundry downstairs, get them there. <laughs> 5,000 T-shirts, my God. Uh, yeah, something like that. I, I can't remember the numbers, but I just remember it was quite hard to do as they became, as these bands got bigger and bigger, the orders were getting bigger and bigger and we needed, or they needed bigger offices. It was their sort of company. I was just, you know, working for them and they were made. So it was kind of like a, a scene. If you look at the t-shirts now, they're worth thousands of pounds. I mean, you know, incredible collector items and they're really good. I mean, you know, they're just simple graphic designs basically. And it was all done. There was no Photoshop back then or anything. It was all, you know. But also to- they're bespoke for the t-shirt. So it's not like it's just an album cover on your t-shirt, right? These are, these are yeah. made specifically for that tour, for that gig. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it was all hand done. So every t-shirt was a little bit different and there was blobs of ink on the shirt and everything but that was the whole look anyway that was the punk aesthetic it didn't really matter and yeah it's just that's how I sort of got in and from there uh, I sort of met Paul I think probably delivering t-shirts or something and you know back then it was like a whole different era it was like you know I walked in I can't remember exactly the first time I met Paul but something came up and do you want to take some pictures at the rainbow and from there it led to you know I'm looking for the list of the things hold on a sec Um, anyway from there I kind of got involved you know I became like their sort of go-to photographer in a sense for a lot of live stuff like I covered them in like so many rainbow gigs I covered the uh, marquee gig which was you know very small which was when they were quite big and it was just mobbed I mean any photographer working in the marquee with a band like the jam it was quite an experience because if you well, you know the marquee it was tiny uh, and it's just an incredible gig but when you're like a photographer you have to be at the front and I could tell you stories about the rainbow like being in the orchestra pit and when shit got out of hand and things flying and they're ripping out the seats and, you know, you just get hit with all kinds of stuff and people gobbing. I mean, that was the worst part of it. In fact, I don't actually go to many live gigs anymore because of some of the experiences I had. Not that I'm scared of it, but mentally scarred by the gobbing. Well, not only that, but it's just like, you know, when shit flies out of control and you're in a sort of a a mob of people, it's like anarchy. I mean, anything happens and there was a lot of shit happened, you know, fights and skinheads, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and I ended up doing, I can't find that list, but I did obviously, you know, the Setting Suns, which I'll tell you a great story about that. Well, yeah, let's talk about this. So this is your, um, this is actually the background for this Zoom call for you as well, which is, here we are, the back sleeve, Setting Suns, Brighton Beach. Yep. You've got the full shot behind you as well. I've got the album here. So talk me through this. So this comes after you taking photos of the Jam yeah, Live in 79, right? Yeah, obviously very early on. I think I, d- I got involved with sound effects, starts, and a town called Malice. I did the single cover for that. And a few other things along the way, posters and stuff, and just bits and pieces. But as I was saying, it was so laid back then. It wasn't like now everything got a sign of copyright thing and you know all this other crap it was like hey Angie do you want to come down and take a picture of the gig and the other thing I was going to say they were very you know family orientated bands which is very different than nowadays so it was sort of very you know obviously his father his mother girlfriend you know everything was run by that so you know I suppose that made it a bit more laid back I wasn't really dealing with the record company at that point so yeah the Selling Sons album was kind of interesting like if you look at that picture and you look at the dog It's actually a boxer and not a British bulldog. 
and it's supposed <laughs> to be not, obviously a British yeah, bulldog. Right. Yes. <laughs> but no one really notices because it's so iconic. And I must say, Robin Richards um, was the art director at, at Fifth Column. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away. But he was, you know, if you check it out, he he's left a sort of trail of some really early punk designs that still stand up today. So anyway, it was supposed to be a British Bulldog. We booked the British Bulldog that was getting paid a lot more than me. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't think I even, I don't think in those days you actually ended up, well, you did. I think I did get paid. That's a whole other thing. You probably had better food. <laughs> well, Paul used to say to me, just charge him double, fuck the record company kind of thing, which was, you know, which doesn't happen today. It's like, you know, now it's the reverse. You know, we've got 10 other people up for this job. So you're yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Back then it was like full on punk. You know, Paul was, yeah, just charge him double. I don't care. We booked the dog and it, we were going up on a Sunday, I think. And I lived in uh, Hoban at the time. And basically, you know, we're waiting around, waiting around for this guy who I'd never met, who I booked over the phone, a friend of a friend, and he never turned up. And I couldn't get hold of him. It wasn't like we had cell phones back then or, you know, any of the sort of other communication tools we have today. So I'm scrambling around looking for a dog. And the only dog I could find was a boxer. So I thought, fuck it, I'll take the boxer. So we head down to Brighton. We get on the beach and we set up and everything. We find a deck chair. We'd silk screened. If you look at the back of the deck chair that's our whole silk screen that we made and stapled to the chair and then we put the dog out and the moment we put the dog out he was gone he was gone it's <laughs> like down the beach gone so we spent about an hour chasing him around with his owner finally got in there and if you look again at the photo you'll see that we had to tie him down in the end because he was definitely not a photo dog um he didn't know what he was up to so all in all it was kind of a fun experience and then just as we're packing up a policeman, a couple of policemen come by. And of course, this is the height of the punk days where anybody that looked like a punk or was under 20 or something was definitely a target of any police, you know. And they sort of came up to us and sort of tried to do us for defacing public property, which was stapling the silkscreen thing onto the back of the chair, which we ended up arguing with them. And they kind of saw the funny side of it. I said, look, we're going to remove it now. There's no damage to this chair at all. And this chair's already should be thrown away. You know what I mean? It's sat out on Brighton Beach for whatever. But it, I'll tell you something about that shot. At the time, again, you know, you don't think about it, but it has become the most iconic shot that I have and probably the most demand for. And not only from jam fans, I got people that love Brighton, Americans that have gone to Brighton and they say, oh, I love the jam as well, but I love the picture of Brighton Beach. I've got to have it. So it's actually amazing, turned out to be a sort of bestseller. It was also, I mean, you wouldn't have been able to get over for this, but at the, at the exhibition in Brighton recently, the Jam Style Council exhibition, there was a whole wall where this image was, and they actually created a beach at the bottom of it. So I think Nicky was putting sand and pebbles and stuff around the bottom. Yeah, I'd love to see a picture I of that. Yeah, I saw Paul a couple of years ago. He played out in L.A., you know, he's always a good guy. I mean, I can't say anything bad about them. I mean, you know, obviously I could see some of the sort of drama that was um, developing literally around the time just before they sort of split up. I remember one of my favorite shots of the jam is actually uh, of, well, of the jam and of Paul is at Air Studios. I don't know if you've seen that shot. There's a great story behind this shot that nearly didn't happen. So this picture is one of my favorites. Oh, so this is one of him on the staircase. I have seen yeah, this. So yeah. where is this? This is at Air Studios, which obviously was, you know, where the Beatles recorded. It's a very famous studio. I think the Beatles put it on the map in a way, but it was like back in the 60s, the technically advanced best studio or something. And Paul recorded there quite a lot. And that was this 
image was actually just before the breakup. I d- I'm not good with the dates and stuff, but if you research it, I think the session, I think about within three or four months, they'd announced they were going to split up. And what was interesting is, so I was covered that over a couple of days. So I would go in because with, with bands, it's not always the right moment to take the picture. So what I used to do is, and if you knew the band, I'd say, look, why don't I just come down for a couple of days and we'll just work out the right moment. Like if they're harassed or they're behind schedule, you get a shit shot. So I'd rather just spend the time and get it right. I remember when I used to walk in, Paul was always in there playing the piano, not in the studio, but I can't remember, maybe in the hallway or the foyer or something. It was always sort of early and he was, you know, knocking out Beatles songs and all this stuff. And it was almost like the pre-run to, you know, Style Council and all that. It was that very different music. He was, you know, playing Beatles songs and all that. So this shot on the day, I was looking for somewhere to photograph like you usually do. I'd get there early and scout out a place. And I saw this place. At first, I didn't really realize it until I went down and saw the sun came out, which is rare in England like that. And then I saw the whole reflection. I thought, wow, this is going to be a great photo. Uh, of course, Paul was late. You know, Paul was never the... um was never on time like a lot of musicians. I don't think I'm talking badly about him, but he, he really was. And this was a moment where I thought, shit, if the clouds come by, I'm going to lose this shot and it's meaningless. I mean, I could still do the same shot, but it just wouldn't have the power. And I'm waiting and waiting and Paul didn't turn up. And then he turns up. And just as he turns up, fucking sun goes down or the clouds come over. And I just said to him, look, can we just wait until the sun comes up? So why don't you go back and carry on recording? I'll wait here. The moment it comes up, I'm going to run up and get you, which I did and got this shot, which I'm glad that I did. As I said, it's, you know, obviously I've got my own personal favorites, but out of all my portraits, I don't know why this one just really resonates with me. You know, the thing about me was I was always wanting to be a serious portrait photographer. Like everything I ever do, I sort of dive into and get really engrossed in it. And, you know, the music press wanted me to take stupid pictures. Like they'd go to me, can't you get Johnny to spit on the floor or gob on somebody or puke up at the airport or something? Right. That was the kind of shots that they wanted, but that wasn't the shots I wanted. So, you know, and then if you take a shot like this, a lot of the times they wanted much closer pictures. You know what I'm saying? They wanted, you know, headshots and stuff. So they'd sort of go, can't we get a bit closer? What's all this other stuff in the image type of thing? One of the things also, if you look at my work, if you put your hand over Paul, there's still a, a photograph stands up. So what really sort of not annoyed me, but I realized very early on that I could shut my eyes, chuck the camera up in the air and put it on the motor drive. And whatever shot I got of any famous person, it would always be reasonably good because of the famous person. So if you look at my work, I kind of do that a lot. If you take any one of these people yeah. out, McLaren, you know, there's a whole picture there without it. That's really interesting. I love yeah, that. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that the editor's... You know, they liked me because I delivered. I know what I was going to say before. The way that it used to work back then, which was print, we're not talking digital now, was I think it was every Wednesday. No matter what, you had to get to the printers with your print for them to put it in the newspaper. And there would be a blank space waiting for it. And I can't tell you how terrifying that was. Because remember that when there's a white space waiting in in the newspaper, it's a big number for them to go back in there and replace that. It's all manual. It's not now. You just get in your computer yeah. and you change something. Uh, so it was quite hectic. And if they sent me on a trip abroad, like, you know, I did bounce like bad manners in Helsinki or something. And if you came back on a Tuesday night, 
you really just had to go straight to the darkroom and get ready to get it in by, I think, 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. Uh, so again, you know, the whole flow of how you worked was so different in an analog world uh, than it is today. I mean, I don't think you go anywhere. You just email it. No, exactly. No, no. Yeah, exactly. It just comes over on a wee transfer. Did that shot get picked up by anybody? Did you use that? And Did it get used anywhere? Yeah, that it was used shot? in, I think it was used in probably Sounds or Record Mirror or maybe The Face magazine. I can't. I can't remember. But again, they would like cut into it. So they would zoom into it. Well, what I used to do was most of the work that you're seeing here, I used to take another camera and do my own stuff. And I'd always do portraits. So obviously bands are really difficult because when you've got five guys, how do you create some sort of graphic visual when they, you've got to get five bodies in the shot? It kind of destroys any structure that you're trying to make. That's why band shots kind of always look to me. There's only a certain amount of ways you can place it to get a background or place people. Uh, so I would always photograph. I'd always grab these for myself. So some of these were never actually published, but the set around them was other images of the band and stuff that they use, that, but probably not a lot of these. That's brilliant. Wow, amazing. This is almost a personal archive, this personal portfolio. Well, well. the problem was that most of my stuff is in negative and obviously traveling, bringing all this stuff with me. I never touched this for... When I left London, I boxed everything up, put them away, archived them properly in complete darkness, left them at my mum and dad's in the attic and never touched it for like 20 years, to be honest with you. Uh, I had a certain amount of negs with me that was my exhibition. So I exhibited in Australia, London, in the photographer's gallery in 84 just before I left London and then in Los Angeles and then recently at the Proud Gallery in uh, Camden yeah so that was what like almost like a 20 year gap yeah and it was amazing you know opening this box and just going through the stuff and I'm still doing it I mean if you go to my Instagram uh, it's very laborious and very hard to digitize a lot of stuff when you've got 50 rolls of the jam, just digitizing 50 rolls and of the quality that I need, you know, the better quality, the longer the scan is kind of thing. But if you look at uh, Instagram, like yesterday I found, or not yesterday, last week, I found a picture of Paulie Yates. I think it was her 18th birthday party. And I've got pictures, I'm about to post them of Bob Geldof and Billy Idol all in sort of uh, speedos. It's quite funny, man. <laughs> but these, so have never been, these have never been seen. Never, no one's ever seen this before, and there's a whole bunch of them. But you're right, where do you start the amount of stuff you've got? I mean, you're never going to get that all scanned in your lifetime, are you? Well, I'm getting there. It's a question of, you know, look, I can't do, I don't digitize everything. I go through there and I pick the ones I want, but even that process takes a long time. And then the whole digital darkroom stuff, even though, look, I'm a, I'm a purist with my portraits. Like everything that I'm showing you is shot. I've never enlarged everything in the image was supposed to be there. Do you understand? I don't mm-hmm. shoot and then crop later. I don't use any filters, don't use any, anything. And I don't digitize any of the stuff. I definitely use Photoshop now to enhance some of the things that I would do in a dark room. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm totally embraced digital, but it's very, very long winded and there's too much choice. You know what I mean? So you end up, which yeah. one do I want? <laughs> do I want the dark one, the light one? Do I want this one? But I, you know, I'm getting to it. I'm about to sort of, I seem to do it at Christmas time. It's like, you know how people have certain things they do at Christmas. Christmas. Well, for me, it's kind of scanning. <laughs> so, but I'm finding incredible stuff that I didn't really value before. Like, you know, as I said, I wanted to be a great, you know, portrait photographer. Everything had to be of the highest standard. So there was a lot of what I call ambient stuff. 
that I didn't really see that's become quite valuable. You said when you were going through some of these negatives to me when we were organizing this chat that you were scanning some old jam ones recently. And the, there's these, the final gigs, right? And this is Paul Weller ringing you up, asking you or telling you to come along, essentially, right? So that, so yeah, that final gig in Brighton. Yeah, I've actually, I pulled them up for you, actually. Now, I love this shot. So to me, John Weller, anyone that was around the jam, that was close to them, you know, backstage and all that from the beginning to the end, he was always there. And he was, you know, obviously not the typical music business manager, but he was a great guy, very normal, very approachable. I mean, I just remember things like I'd be, you know, in the office talking, he'd stand up, he'd pull his trousers down to tuck his shirts in, he'd be standing there with his underpants. And you know what I mean? Do you remember people used to do that? You know what I'm saying? When they would tuck their shirt in, like like your father did. And it was kind of like this father figure that was always there. And, you know, thinking back on it, and then his mother and all that. But this shot was the last shot. Everyone's gone. Paul's probably out partying or whatever. And I just thought, this is him, the father, realizing that it's the end of an incredible era in a way. And to me, this shot is really powerful. A lot of people don't know who he is or whatever, or even resonate. But I think anybody that around the jam would sort of you know, find that kind of interesting. So yeah, I got a phone call. I don't know if it was from Paul, but it was definitely from either the father or somebody, definitely not the record company that just said, look, you know, you've done so many pictures. Why don't you come down and cover the band? Now I've photographed them so many times live. Like I've got hundreds of images of them live. Basically I thought long and hard and I thought, okay, I'm only going to get one chance to get an iconic shot in a way. And I've got so many from the front, meaning, do you understand? Just another shot of them from the front is not going to do it and it was quite mad you know it was at the um brighton convention center i don't think it was the actual last gig i think they did one in in woking but i think this was the you know the last major commercial gig or whatever you want to call it and it was sort of um you think it was basically i got behind the drum kit and i waited there literally the whole time i didn't really photograph them from the front because i had so many shots and they all looked the same to be honest with you not the same but you know mm. so I, I waited until they'd finished and got the last ever shot which hopefully i've got here oh my god these are brilliant and people have not yeah. seen these these are yeah so this is them saying goodbye. And what's interesting here is, and there's more of these I'll show you, is look at Paul, how he stands back, which is how he was. Paul was always the thinker. Paul was always, you know, I wouldn't call him grumpy, but he was a thinker. He was, you know, the lead singer of a top band. You know, he had a lot of responsibility. You know what I mean? It can't be easy to keep churning out the kind of songs that he was. This is a very good picture of the jam in a way, because Paul steps back and sort of looks out at the crowd. The other two are kind of waving. Hold on. And this is the sort of sound check. I'll just show you through this quickly. That arriving people outside. This is what I mean by ambient shots. And at the time, I would look at this and go, how did I do that? Probably as I picked up the camera, I just pressed the shutter by mistake or something, you know. It's not a shot that I would use, but it's actually becomes a lot more interesting, you know, 30, 40 years or however long it is now. We're capturing the times, right? As much as anything else as well. So. There's some pictures of them after the gig. So I got them coming down from the sound check. So that's their last ever journey from the stage. Wow, wow, wow. The sweat on Bruce Foxton. <laughs> I know. So, as I said, what I really wanted to capture was this stuff, and it was very fast, and there was a lot of people, so it wasn't like post stuff so much. And you have to do that sometimes. You, you know, around bands, a lot of people, you can get trapped in the wrong place. Like if I was out front, I would find it difficult, even with my passes, to get back at the right moment. Do you understand? To do the picture from behind the stage, I thought, fuck it, I'm just going to stay right behind and just cover everything other than the front. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's funny, isn't it? Because so much of the jam's image, when you think of that kind of traditional, that, that classic jam shot, is them in the jam suits. But actually, yeah. that was really like first 18 months of that record and then suddenly I mean there we're into they're all got different looks the lawns there and whatever but that image got stuck they got stuck in terms of from a visual point of view I guess well even more today I think because everything is so divisive so back then there was no press people controlling it so access was not like it is now like I don't I don't really photograph bands now but I have a lot of mates that do and I've been around the situations everything is like have you got your pass uh, have you signed off on copyright can we have the film after you shoot it do you know what I mean there's all this shit that goes on and it's like you know it's all so managed back then it was so loose you know that ownership is yours as well which is really important so when you talk about like you know just making a living right that archive is yours yeah, well, it's interesting. No, well, it's interesting you should say that because you know the app that I'm involved in. I'm all about copyright because copyright is just failing, and you know it's an analog solution trying to solve a huge digital problem. There's a hundred million images on Instagram every day now shared, and most of them don't have attribution. You know, blah blah blah. Copyright back then. I owned everything. If someone stood in front of the camera, I owned it. Plus, British copyright law is a lot different than here. It's much more weighted towards moral rights and not so much uh, in America. It's all statutory rights, which is about money, right? In England, it's all about moral rights. Like, you know, I can't sell T-shirts with this unless I had a license, but that's obvious. But I own this image. I can do whatever I want with it. I can't commercialize it, you know, within reason. Like if I did 10 T-shirts... There's no damage, right? I could do 10 t-shirts and sell them. Maybe they'd try and sue me, but I don't think so. If I did 10,000 t-shirts, it would be. Okay, so this is the marquee gig. And, you know, again, right... These guys here, anyone that was around there, I think this is Kenny, you know. That's Kenny, Kenny Wheeler, guys, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But all these guys, it's like for me and for other people that were there, not the new fans, but this is a sort of caricature, isn't it? Of exactly how I remember the moment. These people and faces, it's, it's not just the band, but look at Paul. This is the marquee. And I'm like, I don't know, stuck in the throng of it here. That reminds me of John Wilson came on the broadcast that came on the podcast and talks about um, talks about the hairy nature of the crew. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that picture captures that perfectly. Yeah, yeah, and they were all great, great guys as well. I mean, what I mean by that, without mentioning names, some of the bands had real thugs as um, security and roadies, and you know, it was just not a not good. And again, and I think it had something to do with because there was a father figure there. I think people don't realize that, but you know. I think having John around kept this band in a way quite special at that time. Like, I don't remember, look, 
there was crazy times and Paul would get into it and have drinks. And I always remember that he, he would always go missing after the gig. Not always, but I remember this frantic, everyone running around, where's Paul, where's, where's Paul? And someone would say, Oh, I saw him go out the back door. Oh fuck. We better go find him. He's going to get into trouble, drink too much or get in a fight or skinheads are going to corner him. And there was this like mass panic, like where's Paul kind of thing. But again, you know, I think that, that was the difference also between the jam and a lot of other bands. I don't remember the Clash having any father figures around on the pistols. If anybody, I suppose it was McLaren, you know. Got out, yeah. <laughs> Let's have a look here. Okay, so this is, uh, no one's really seen this this picture. This is in my studio. And again, you know, just rang up. I, I need some more shots or something. Were you available? Sure. No record company involved. No PR person. Nobody checked what was going on. And it was just me, Paul, and his minder. That was it. Probably Kenny. This is one of my favorite live shots of the jam. I did this sort of four-shot sequence of this. Printed them up as a sequence, and I mounted them on a board. Now, remember back then, it was all hand done. So I remember I had this special glue that you had to iron on the back or something. It was rubbish. But, you know, it was what I was using. And I did this thing and I took it to Paul like a kind of schoolboy does. You know, hey, look, how do you like this? And he goes, oh, I love it. And just took it, <laughs> which was all right. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't I didn't want him to have it. But it was like, oh, OK. You know. <laughs> that's gone, man. <laughs> yeah, that's gone. <laughs> this is kind of cool. And, you know, some of the people will remember he always had, in, you know, motifs on the sort of guitars and stuff. I mean, no one's seen any of these, trust me. There must be a temptation to put these... I mean, you must have been asked or thought about it, surely, to put these in some kind of book, right? I do, but it's like, you know, look, I'll be honest with you. For the, As I said, I put them all away for about 20 years and didn't touch them. Then I was so busy and this stuff so time-consuming. Even now, I get calls all the time for magazines and stuff. It's very difficult for me. It takes a lot of time and there's a lot of wind-up. It happened to me the other day over, uh, I think it was Boy George or something. I got a call from a film company, a researcher that wanted images and they're all coming on strong like we really want your stuff because we haven't seen it before and we've got a deadline no and we're behind so you've got to move fast and then i got to go find them then i got to go put them together then i got to send them to them then i got to think about uh, a licensing contract because once you give something to someone i got to cover it there's a lot of liability if i don't they'll end up somewhere else so it's a bit of a number and then what happens is like in that situation happens a lot i don't hear back from them and then I email and say, hey, anything going on? I sent you some images like my work, valuable pictures. You know, what happened? Oh, you know, uh, we, you know, we haven't got time. So those scenarios take a lot of time and I just don't have that amount of time to do that. You know, books are interesting. I've been offered deals with books. Again, it's just very time consuming and I just am involved in other things. Like, you know, I've got this software company and before it was the production company and it's just I don't have the time to do it or I suppose the motivation. You know, it's not that I'd turn down the money, but it's just I don't, it, you know, I've got other incomes. So I suppose if I didn't have an income, I'd be a lot more aggressive over it. And in terms of a book, I'd rather do it myself now. The moment I saw self-publishing and stuff, like books are great. It's like exhibitions, right? A lot of work. I mean, the Proud exhibition was literally six months of work. 
not all the time, but I had to fly to England twice, set it all up and then deal with all the stuff. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying very difficult to eke out that time. And also, you know, I'm very into technology. So I've built a virtual exhibition that's incredible. So I don't know if you've used any of the uh, Oculus or any of the VR stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the headsets and all that, yeah. You know, for certain things, it's really good. Like I think it's very early days. I've got the Oculus. In the beginning, it was great novelty. And now I kind of like, I only use it for certain things, which is building this sort of gallery because it's phenomenal. You can walk in this gallery, walk up to a huge image, right? You know, you can really make them big in this sort of virtual environment and create the most incredible environment for it. And, you know, for me, that's where I'm going with exhibitions. So I'm, you know, it's like a hobby. It's not a full-time thing, but I'm building that slowly. It's nearly sort of ready. So yeah, I'm not, I'm reluctant to do exhibitions and even books because I can do the books on my own and I'd rather sort of service a sort of niche. I've got collectors collecting stuff and I sell prints like signed limited edition prints and I have open editions. I do sell images, but I'm not aggressively going after it. It's usually people find it uh, through my website or, you know, someone nicked it or I don't really care, to be honest with you. A lot of the people who are using my images are sort of fans and stuff and, you know, I'm not going to stop and do that like if they're doing t-shirts and stuff that's a whole different ball game but most people are not going to do that hey look this has been so lovely andy thank you so much for taking me through this portfolio and sharing these memories with me and i I feel from a I, from the conversation we're having, I feel like the punk element of you has not gone away. And by that, I don't mean, I don't mean the spiky hair and that kind of, yeah. I just mean no, that lost, kind of, e- lost most of my hair, <laughs> I mean that kind of ethos and that can do attitude of just, I'm going to give things a go and I'm going to crack this and, and just have a go at stuff. Your career since the photography is so kind of eclectic and moving in all, all these different directions, but it feels like that punk mentality is still deep within you. Yeah, I mean, it is. And I think it's sort of, you know, everything that I've done, and I'll, I'll send you links, you can see actually, but it, it is related. And the, I mean, the funny thing is, so this is my company. And what I'm really doing is just protecting digital content. So I'm creating like a passport that goes with it wherever it goes. And it's about basically, you know, register, manage, authenticate, license, marketplace. So it's a way of protecting digital assets, proving the origin. I use the blockchain, but it's sort of related because it's all about creative people and now protecting creativity, including my own work. Uh, I'm obviously using my own work. And also what I find is everything I've ever done, that the photographers always played a part. So when I had the Underground, which was my production company, and we did everything from Marilyn Manson, the Stones, Metallica, everything that moved. And we were definitely the punk production company. I modeled it on a kind of roots British punk company, which kind of worked for music, didn't work too well for commercials when we're dealing with Pepsi and stuff. But, you know, everything I do, I try and push forward into the future. I don't look back. I don't do Me Too apps. And this app is very much the same thing. So even though it is eclectic, there is a sort of connection or a path that got me here. It isn't just that I woke up and said, oh, now I'm going to be a software developer or something. I wouldn't recommend being a software developer. I think looking back on it, photography was such a great... Well, back in the day, I think it's very difficult now for modern photographers. It's a whole different ball game. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the AI stuff, artificial intelligent photography. I mean, similar to music, right? I don't know how new musicians, new bands make a living out of that because the venues don't oh. exist. The, you know, It's so hard to get your music discovered now because the radio is not doing the same thing. I think that, you know, look, the problem with this era is that everything has changed. 
way we used to make money, technology now is moving very fast. And this convergence with analog and digital has really exploded now. And what people don't realize is this is the point of impact. Up until now, it's been a baby rattle. The internet, MEMS, Twitter, Facebook, come on, this can't be what technology leads to. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, next yeah. to, you know, you don't have to be, you know, it's just useless stuff, right? It's all very entertaining, but it's like a baby rat. Look, look what we're doing now with AI, quantum computing that's sort of coming in, faster processing, virtual reality, the metaverse, and, you know, people point fingers at it, but I tell you, it's coming pretty fast. So, so what I was saying is people need to adapt. Bands can make money. They just can't make money trying to make it the same way that the Rolling Stones did or even the jam did. So when you look at the sort of black music or the rap music scene, they make most of their money outside of all of that. Merchandising, you know, they become influencers. You know what I'm saying? That's where they're making the money. The music, unfortunately, and you can't knock it, becomes just one part of the big picture, right? So I think a lot of bands just need to sort of adapt. I think bands can always make money. I just think that we're in this, and our generation, unfortunately, are like the beta testers, aren't they, for this era? You know, nothing's really going to work yet. The metaverse, all of this stuff, it's not going to work yet. It will in 10, 20 years. And unfortunately, we're going to just go through this sort of turbulence, which we're all going through politically, you know, cancel culture, whatever your beliefs are. It's a kind of, there is something, a big change, and you can definitely track it to um, technology. I just want to show you something because I'm really into this at the moment, and I think you should know about it. Okay, so this is an AI picture. There's no photography involved at all. I typed in what I wanted. What? That just looks that like is, a perfect human being. Yes, exactly. So this is basically AI, which is steaming in, causing massive disruption. I mean, it's killing the stock agency business. There's this whole thing now, like about, is it art, which is ridiculous, right? Does it matter who created it? Do you understand what I mean? It doesn't really matter. If what is art? You look at it, you like it, it says something to you. I don't know what art is. And then there's poetry. So there's computers that are putting out poetry now that is as good as, if not better than most poets. And that's really sort of challenging human beings. Well, it's challenging because you don't know, like you think about like people will have their favorite poet. We're followers of people that we like, whether it's people like Weller or whoever. You can't follow an AI, can you? Yeah, but it's again what I'm sort of saying, that things are changing. It's like the foundation is changing. It doesn't happen in everyone's lifetime. So you can either fight it, which is what they're doing. Imagine the copyright guys, they're all over it. All yeah. the attorneys are licking their lips and they're putting the fear of God in people. And then it's like, who is the copyright holder? So basically, is it the machine? Is it the algorithm? You know, it's kind of like, remember, the copyright system hasn't got over, hasn't worked out how to define an NFT. And now they've got AI, which is changing everything. But I just wanted to show you something else. Hold on. Okay, so this was my AI ballerinas. It's just incredible. I mean, that's remarkable. The fact, I mean, this looks like, like a photo shoot of human beings. Look at that. So you can imagine, I'll send you articles, what's going on. Can you imagine the mayhem of the old school <laughs> analog guys and the legal people trying to quantify this? And you've got Getty images saying that we won't allow an AI images. And then you've got people saying that it's copyright infringement because they're basically scraping images. So how AI works is it's basically data, right? So they're actually scraping all these images, turning it into data, looking for patterns, and then they recreate it. So it's not a montage of all these pictures. It's a question of the AI going in there and learning 
the patterns of human beings, but they're sampling real pictures. That's where the copyright law is going for. So they're saying that it's not, it's not fair use because whatever, but they're not going to win it. Trust me, I'm all over it. And video is also coming. The whole video business is going to change. I mean, bands are doing incredible. There's AI people doing videos for bands. I'll tell you something as well. AI, most of the articles that you're reading are AI assisted. So most of the media that you're looking at, most of the articles that are put out, you know how there's these people that just generate clickbait and articles to promote things. Most of it is now being generated by AI, which, believe it or not, is incredible as well. Just the same as I type in, I want a picture of a ballerina with whatever, and it comes out. That's remarkable, isn't it? I know. Wow. Anyway, I thought I'd show you. As you can see, I'm infused by the future. And I think, just to leave you on this note, the best thing about it is I'm just infused by the mayhem. Punk was like that. You know, I think you know, the best thing about the punk scene was, so when you're 16, you leave home. Your parents can't stand you anyway. Society shuns you if you're at least moving on the sort of fringes of things. And the best thing about punk was just the reaction. It was just like, if you're 16 and you walk down the street and you see people crossing the street, it's like magic. You know, it's everything you want. As you get older, it doesn't really count that much. <laughs> but I see the same thing with all this technology. So I kind of get off on the mayhem, you know. I love it when people are thrown, the status quo is challenged, which is what's happening here. If you just look at art, the whole status quo of art is up in arms and everybody's all over it. Wow, Andy, this has been so lovely. I have two questions for you before you go, okay? Yeah. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with? I'd say Down in the Tube Station at Midnight. Why that one? I think, I don't know, because I suppose it just resonates with having been in the Tube Station at night. And I don't know, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure why. It's such a visual song, though, isn't it? It paints such an incredible picture with the words and but the the sound of it as well, with Bruce on the bass, Rick on the drums, Paul's vocals. It's an incredible piece of work, that. Yeah, Eaton Rifles was also good, just in terms of the lyrics and stuff and what it meant. I mean, I think, it, you know, when I look at songs, they appeal to me in different ways. Sometimes songs, doesn't matter what they say, it just sounds good, you know? Mm. Other times, it's really the lyrics that resonate with me and then drive why I like the song, in a way. Um I think with the jam, it was always, as I said, when, when I started, it was the sort of lyrically, it just appealed to me, connected with me, which I think is why people like certain bands and not the others. You know, for people that like The Clash, they'll say the same thing. Final question. So um purpose of this podcast is to meet amazing people like yourself who have had these incredible careers, but also these links with Paul, these stories with The Jam, The Star Council, or Solo. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. I was a radio presenter. I gave up around 10 years ago. That was my one big regret that I never got to interview Weller. So I've created a podcast to make it happen. Amazing. If but have happened, you interviewed him? You have interviewed him. No, right not yet. No? Still, we're still going. That's the point. We've got to get to the end game. Haven't you asked him? I'm having too much fun doing this. Uh, if it happens, what should I ask him? What do you reckon I should ask him, question-wise? That's a tough question, really. I suppose, you know, I suppose an interesting thing is, it's like looking back on your career, what changes would you have made? What would the difference be with what you know now is kind of interesting to me. Because as I said, when I was younger, things like pissing off the establishment and your parents was kind of entertaining. As you get older, it sort of changes. So I would imagine for someone like Paul that's had, you know, an incredible career and a lot of action, more than most people, meaning situations and stuff with the band splitting up and his dad and all this stuff that goes on. What would he have done different when he looks back on his career? I think would be interesting for any younger musician and any fan in a way to see what he scrutinizes uh, um, a lot of other people have their opinions but it'd be interesting to see what paul says i'm sure he would let you interview him 
Okay. <laughs> I'm going to handwrite a letter because I think that's that's the, the, all the fans who used to get letters back from Paul. I think that's the way forward. But how long how long have you been doing the the radio thing for? Um, well, I was a radio presenter for like uh, oh God, like twenty odd years. Then yeah, I've been doing it for about ten years. I work in a media agency now. But uh, but and then been doing this podcast since December 2020. So okay, I can't so, imagine that they that he hasn't contacted you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not at a bean, Andy. Honestly, bugger all. <laughs> I'll email. I, I don't think I got um, Paul's email, but I got uh, his sister. Oh, Nikki's been on and Anne's been on, but we're, we're, we're hopefully getting there. It's a bit like a um, Velociraptors That's... in Jurassic Park. It's like the pincer approach. Ah, I'll send him something. <laughs> well, thank you, Andy. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Thank you. Take care. I hope it. Hope it all sounds good when you edit it. What a smart cookie. That is Andy Rosen, punk photographer extraordinaire. His photographs of the jam are just stunning. And here's something really special, okay? So we videoed some of our chats. And if you head to my website right now, you can see some of the images of the jam being shared for the very first time ever. Ever, 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 okay? A proper world exclusive Andy Rosen's images, something very special. Have a watch on my website paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, there's also a great offer for three of the prints as well. Just head to the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Andy Rosen It's at paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, you should know by now, hopefully you can support the podcast. If you want to get our exclusive merchandise, you can. A nice t-shirt for the summer will be lovely. Or our first official podcast mug, which I'm told, and correct me if I'm wrong, band members, maybe Mr. Weller, get in touch. But I'm told there are official Paul Weller Fan Podcast mugs at Black Barn Studio, Paul Weller HQ right now, okay? How lovely. And if you fancy it, you can also support the show by buying a virtual coffee as well. By doing that, you get onto the roll call for this podcast. Doing that over the past week. Thank you so much to Steve Henson. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to John Reed. Hi to Mark Josling. Hello, Mark. He says, I've loved all the podcasts from episode one and the Nick Haywood one was one of the very best so far. He came over as a really top bloke. Keep up the great work. Cheers. Oh, thank you, Mark. That's really nice to hear. Hi to Mike C. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Martin Bonhom, Simon Cartilage. Hello to Alex McLaughlin. Hello, Alex, who says the Nick Haywood episode was another winner. Nick was a cracking listen. Hello to Martin Glover. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee as well. And Steve Perry, thanks to you, sir, too. Cheers for all your virtual coffees. If you want to get in touch, you can do. Just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And next up on the podcast, we are going to celebrate 40 years of the Style Council. Incredibly, it's going to be 40 years since that very first single. And my very special guest will be Darren Fletcher from the Style Councillors, who will join me on the next episode of the podcast as a little Style Council celebration. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. You can also find me on social media. Heck, get in touch, but also spread the word, okay? At Weller Fan Pod on Twitter or on Instagram or Facebook. If you just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast, you can find me there. Get in touch. Be lovely to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.